I'm Tavis Smiley. This is KBLA Talk 1580. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. So glad to have you tuned in to Unapologetically Progressive Talk Radio, where we're curating content, smart content for smart people just like you. In this hour, are black folk facing significant obstacles, black folk in particular, I should say, facing significant obstacles in STEM education and professions? We're told STEM, STEM, STEM is the answer to every prayer. (laughs) Uh, But is imposter syndrome merely a fragment of a more complex puzzle that includes structural racism in this hour? Please be joined by Dr. Ebony McGee, Professor of Diversity and STEM Education at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College. As we explore the intricate connections between imposter syndrome and the uphill battles experienced uh, by so many marginalized groups in the world of STEM, you know what that means, of course, science, technology, engineering, and math, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Ebony McGee to this program. Dr. McGee, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. I'm so grateful to be here. I'm grateful that you are here. Glad to have you on. Glad we have an hour to talk about this. A lot of interesting stuff I'm sure we'll cover uh, over the next mm-hmm. 60 minutes. Let me start with this. I said a moment ago, I said a couple times already in our show today, uh, that STEM always seems to be uh, preached to us as the answer to the prayer. Are you suggesting that that is wrong for black people in particular? No, I think that black people deserve to be in STEM. But I think the rationale behind why they deserve to be in STEM is sort of misaligned with the values and collective orientation of black people. So the message is come to STEM so you can make lots of money, so you can make the Googles and the LinkedIn's of the world happy. Uh, But actually, black folks end up making about $30,000 less than their peers. So... Positioning STEM is sort of a level playing field uh, when it terms to income and compensation. It's just wrong and it's misguided. The other thing that uh, folks talk about in terms of marketing STEM to black people is to be able to beat China and to boost our military. And as you know, Travis, uh, black people really care about their communities. They care about racial justice. They care about environmental racism. And those things aren't marketed in the same way as, you know, the capitalistic sort of bend that STEM has enjoyed uh, for centuries. Mm-hmm. A couple of things you said already now that are worth uh, unpacking here. Um, let me um, start with this. Um, when you mentioned a moment ago that black people uh, make uh, less money, about $30,000 on average in STEM than other folk uh, make in STEM. Again, that's 30k less uh, black folk make than others in STEM. On, 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 that's 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 not encouraging on the one hand. On the other hand, it's not surprising. Um, black people, as you uh, probably well know, uh, lag far behind in every single leading economic indicated category. We lag behind in every category. And it is also the case that in, I mean, you connect these dots pretty simply in every field of human endeavor. We always seem to make less than other folk make um, 30,000 in STEM. Um, why should STEM be any different? I'm, I'm being tongue in cheek about this, but why should STEM be any different? We make less money everywhere else. Why should we? Why should? Why, why do we think that we would not make less money in STEM? Mm. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's an interesting phenomenon mm-hmm. where one of the 
uh, markers to success is to be in STEM. Mm-hmm. And people assume that you're in STEM, that you are um, that you are paid the same as your counterparts, but it's simply not true. Mm-hmm. The other thing about wealth and income in STEM is that STEMer, black STEMers have more debt. And of that debt, black women actually have the highest. So if you graduate with a PhD in a science or engineering field, your debt on average is about $72,000. So what you have are people who are talented, qualified with a PhD in thermodynamics or electrical engineering and are strapped with this debt. And sometimes these same women in their 70s are dying with college debt. Mm. So to me, that is a form of servitude. No, we'll come to that. Uh, when you said that, my mind immediately went to Barack and Michelle Obama. Uh, I've said this mm. more than I've said this more than once in my career, my broadcast career. Uh, it was true then; it's still true now. Uh, in the history of this country, uh, there have never been a president and first lady who took the oath of office, who had the kind of college debt that Barack and Michelle had. Now, they live in large now, and I ain't mad at them. Mm-hmm. They, they got more money now than they can spend in, in, in multiple lifetimes. Uh, they are doing mm-hmm. quite well. Their two girls will do well, and their grandkids will do well. They're set for life now. Um, but uh, to consider that when he was elected president and she became the first lady, they had debt coming out their ears. I mean, they literally had college debt the entire time. He's president of the United States. But he had, he and his wife have college debt all eight years. They didn't pay that stuff off and they left the White House, essentially. So it just goes to show you um, the point that Dr. McGee is making, that even when you have uh, advanced degrees, when you're in STEM, or in their case, when you go to Harvard Law, uh, when you go to Princeton undergrad, Columbia undergrad, as they did, uh, you still are, are, are straddled with this debt uh, because uh, black people tend to have more debt. I say all that to ask, and I'm not naive in asking, why specifically it is that black stimmers have more debt than others? That's a very complicated question. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the way graduate school debt is um, funneled to graduate students. So there's a lot more unsubsidized loans. And people think that if folks get their tuition paid, somehow that's a full ride. They call that a full ride. Mm -hmm. But as you know, many black folks may have children, they may be caring for their elders, or they may just be simply trying to survive on a $1,500 stipend a month. Mm. And of course, you know, that is not survivable. Oftentimes, as a graduate student, you are going to conferences, you don't get reimbursed till many months later, so they are sort of locked out of multiple opportunities because of the way sort of graduate school works. I think it's a bad proposition Mm. to ask black people who have a bachelor's in a STEM field who could go out making possibly six figures to be broke for another six to eight years until they get a PhD. And then after that, things will be okay, but you'll have this $70,000 worth of debt. Mm. So it's a bad proposition. I think we need to change, you know, the financial structure of graduate school, which would allow more black people 
to self-actualize themselves, you know, with the master's mm-hmm. and a Ph.D. When we come forward, we'll talk about that, how, in fact, we uh, uh, changed the structure of graduate school uh, and graduate school pricing. I don't know how that happens uh, because the folk that uh, set those uh, <laughs> those prices uh, ain't trying to hear that. But we'll talk about that. I, I hear it as a solution. Uh, we'll interrogate that when we uh, come forward. And we'll talk about this uh, Brad po- this bad proposition, that is, that Dr. McGee just uh, lays out. I'm trying to juxtapose in my own mind the notion of this being a bad proposition for black people, STEM, that is, a bad proposition, trying to square that with all the all the proselytizing that we get all the time about the fact that more black people need to be in STEM. If I had a dime every time I've heard that frame, that black people, that phrase, that we need more black folk in STEM, I'd be independently rich. Uh, so they, they keep preaching this notion just that we need more of us in STEM. And here comes Dr. Ebony McGee saying, hold up, that's not such a good proposition. We'll unpack all of it when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Talking about STEM with a professor in the field. Um, she is a professor of diversity and STEM education at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College. Dr. Ebony McGee is her name, and if anybody knows about this topic, she does. Uh, and so I'm pleased to have her on in this hour because I keep hearing, you keep hearing, we all keep hearing uh, that we need to have more black folk in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. We hear it all the time. Uh, they're they're appealing to our people. They are recruiting our people. And here comes Dr. Ebony McGee, who's an expert in this field, telling us it is a bad proposition. Dr. McGee, if it's such a bad proposition, why are they still uh, uh, trying to call black folk to the to the STEM altar, as it were? <laughs> yes. Well, black people in STEM is is actually very important. I think the pathway to STEM is sort of a bad proposition, particularly in graduate school when they ask you basically to be impoverished in order to get a PhD. So that's where the bad proposition is. But why do we need to be in STEM? We need to be in STEM because black people have a collectivist orientation. They have a sense of responsibility to their communities and the the larger society. And they function in STEM quite differently than uh, mainstream folks do. So black folks overwhelmingly want to integrate their STEM ability with racial justice. Mm. So, for example, they want to investigate why um, everybody on their grandmother's block, all the black women, seem to be dying of cancer. Is there something in the water? Is there something that they can use their STEM skills to sort of investigate this phenomenon in order to make their communities healthier? Or, for example, you have Dr. Ayanna Howard, who is a dean of engineering at the Ohio State University, Mm -hmm. first black woman to get that position. She's a roboticist, but she uses her robotics to do physical therapy on cerebral palsy patients. So we need that type of STEM. We don't need more bombs. We need people who care about and want to build and thrive and make our communities better. Mm. I, I love the way you um, just laid that out because I've never thought about it in that regard that, that black folk just sort of move differently when they are in the in the STEM arena, in the STEM field. And and, and how are those movements uh, regarded by others more broadly in the STEM arena? That is that is the key question. I'm so happy you asked me that, because oftentimes when you're trying to get 
grant funding, which is important for STEM innovation. Mm -hmm. You know, you need revenue for the revolution because it's not free. (laughs) Oftentimes when you have an equity component or a racial justice component, it's actually, that grant is actually denied because it's not STEM enough. You know, it's not enough deep tech. And we're pushing back to say, if our grants don't have a purpose of bettering society, bettering our communities, what what's the point, right? Mm-hmm. More capitalism, more greed, more militarism. We don't need any more of that, right? We need, first of all, the planet, stemmers are the ones who sort of are creating this um, environmental pollution that we have on the planet. I know you don't hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. They're rarely indicted. But the military is the largest polluter in the world, followed by many energy companies right here in the United States. And where do they put their toxic waste dumps? Guess what? In black and brown and poor communities, right? Mm -hmm. So we are already the recipients of bad STEM, and black people have the potential with other minoritized folks to remake it, to reimagine a STEM that is better and and more ethical. And, you know, AI is is something that we sort of interrogate. We interrogate those biases. So we need folks like that to really, to be frank and very honest, to help us save the planet. Oh, no, the the longer you talk, the the more questions I have. So this is getting good. This is getting good to me. So (laughs) let me me pick up my pace here. Uh, First of all, uh, I I love that that, that frame, that that, that phrase, uh, revenue uh, for the revolution. Never thought about it that way. uh, uh, Gil Scott Heron said the revolution will not be televised. Dr. McGee says ain't no revolution without some revenue. And I take your point. You're going to need some revenue for the revolution with all due respect to Gil Scott Heron. Uh, Never heard it put that way. That's why I love doing this every day. I learn stuff and then come up with, come up with new phrases every day. So that's a good one. Revenue <laughs> for the revolution. Now, having said that, which tickled me uh, immensely, <clears throat> the, the things you said a moment ago that I want <clears throat> to sort of interrogate here a bit more. One is, and I never quite <clears throat> had a conversation. I was thinking about this in my entire career. I don't know that I've ever had a conversation specifically about this. And now, now I'm about to put you on the hot seat, but blame yourself for mm-hmm. it. You, you open the door. I'm just following you in. Um, <laughs> to what extent is there racism? In government grant giving? Mm. So several studies have confirmed both the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation has showed bias against black folks, brown folks, some brown folks, not all, let's just to be clear, and folks who want to have a sort of justice-oriented lean to their projects. Mm -hmm. We are historically have been underfunded. Um, We don't receive the grant awards in the same sense. And this is in spite of these very big, very well-funded organizations saying that they have commitments towards racial equity, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a mismatch between the commitments that they say they have on paper and actually awarding racial equity grants to black and other minoritized folks. Mm. So there's a, there's definitely a disconnect. So <clears throat> I'm wondering, excuse me, I'm wondering if in the world of STEM, there was this, how might I put it, this reckoning, this come to Jesus meeting, this calling on the carpet, as there were for so many other industries 
uh, after the death of George Floyd? Were, were, were there any sort of uh, reckoning conversations about the ways in which black folk and others are maltreated in that particular industry, As a, again, as there were in many others? Yes, absolutely there was. There was um, after the murder of George Floyd. But before the murder of George Floyd, there was already action and intentionality by black stemmers to sort of dismantle, decolonize them as a field mm. or as a set of fields. So this was happening way before George Floyd. But right after that, there was a, um, a campaign to shut down STEM. So it was the hashtag shut down STEM where STEM companies sort of dedicated that day. And again, it was only a day. Mm. And in the experiences, the challenges of being black and being brown in STEM. After that, a flood of organizations start uh, happening with black and AI, black and neuro, um, black and STEM that were promoting our experiences, but also the innovations that Black folks have created in STEM and fighting for um, having a place and space where we could be celebrated, not mm -hmm. simply just tolerated. Mm -hmm. The other thing you said a moment ago that I have never, I don't think I've ever put a, a, my finger on the pulse quite the way that I want to right now, given that you you know raised this issue, is the notion of stemmers uh, creating much of the environmental, environmental degradation that we are witnessing every day. Um, yeah. I read something. I mean, you can't, you can't avoid it. I mean, I'm, I'm reading stuff all the time. Of course, I do this for three hours every day, so I need to be halfway uh, erudite mm -hmm. about what I'm talking about. Um, and so I'm reading stuff all the time. And every day, it gets more and more depressing for me to read about temperatures climbing. I was just reading an article this morning uh, in the New York Times uh, or someplace. I read four or five things this morning. Um, that the next five years are, uh, they are predicting based on the data are going to be the hottest ever. The next five years is going to get mm -hmm. hotter and hotter and mm -hmm. hotter and hotter and hotter for mm -hmm. five consecutive years. Just reading a, just a, just a, just a dispiriting story about how we're going to start overheating in ways we can't even imagine over the next five mm -hmm. years. Here you come now, Dr. Ebony McGee, uh, underscoring for us that much of the, again, environmental degradation that we are witnessing is courtesy of stemmers. So we were pushing people into this field, black and otherwise, uh, black and beyond, I should say. We're pushing folk into this field of science, technology, engineering, and math. We're, we're, we're driving toward that. We don't want China to keep outdistancing us. We don't want India to outdistance us. And so we're driving mm -hmm. more people into the STEM field. <laughs> but nobody is drawing attention yeah. to the fact that it is the stemmers that are causing all this drama. Here you come uh, transparently and honestly raising that. I'm not naive about why there isn't much more conversation about it, but what are we to make of that reality? You know, it's a really, really good point because if I went into a store and I hurt somebody, there would be consequences. But when STEM companies pollute and, you know, waste our air and our natural resources, Nothing happens to them. Mm. Or even if something does, they consider it the cost of doing business, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So when we have these STEM companies recruiting at our universities, we need to investigate them. 
we don't need to just feel like, oh, we're so grateful that this particular company is coming, particularly to HBCUs. And I went to one, Mm -hmm. so I I know how this works. We need to investigate, are our students going to be part of the air emissions or part of the pollution, or are they going to be part of the solution, right? Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the top 10 humanitarian crises of 2022 that did not make the headlines, all 10 of them are African countries, Mm. all 10. Now, this is because of environmental pollution. Even though the global South only has 8% excess global emissions and the global North has 92% of excess global emissions, the crises are happening in Africa. Uh, that may underscore why we're not having more conversation about it. Uh, what say you? Mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. In 2021, the top 10 underreported humanitarian crises included Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And what did we do as a result? We pumped billions of dollars, billions into Ukraine, the only white country on that list for 2022. And what do we have left? our black countries. Our black countries are suffering the most where the global north, places like the United States, Europe, Russia, are doing the most when it comes to the global emissions. So it's just a travesty. And I'm so glad that I'm here to sort of break the silence on this issue. In what ways, I've just got 90 seconds here before news, traffic, and sports will continue when we come forward. But in what ways do those realities uh, hamper, hinder, um, disenfranchise those African countries? Oh, man. It's just so heartbreaking in terms of uh, in Angola, 3.8 million people do not have enough to eat. Mm-hmm. In Central Africa Republic, 3.1 million people are in need of humanitarian aid. In Zambia, 50% of people live on a, a $2 a day. Chad has the highest maternity mortality rate in the world. I mean, I could just go on and on and on. And a lot of this has to do with the pollution, which is polluting their food, their air, their water, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's a crisis. Um, we'll continue when we come forward. Uh, before I lose sight of this, uh, you mentioned your HBCU. And unlike most HBCU, HBCU graduates I know, you ain't got to ask them to shout it out. They're going to do it whether you want them to or not. But since you mentioned it, go on and shout out your HBCU, Dr. McGee. North Carolina NC State University Aggie Pride for all the Aggies and future Aggies. Thank you. There you go. I thought I would just take the opportunity to let you shout it out. You were kind not to do it on your own like everybody else does. But there you go, North Carolina A&T. Um, when we come forward, um, more of this uh, uh, powerful and rich conversation with Dr. Ebony McGee uh, about whether or not, broadly speaking, uh, STEM is a bad proposition for folk who look like you and me. You're listening to we knew you'd stick around. This is LA's home for progressive talk radio. Welcome back to KBLA Talk 1580. Well, I didn't know you'd stick around, but I hope you stick around for this uh, conversation to continue. Uh, it's a rich conversation with Dr. Ebony McGee, professor of diversity and STEM education at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College, who we are pleased to have on as we continue our conversation now about uh, whether or not STEM 
uh, is a bad proposition for black folk in particular. We are in graduation seasons. I'm sure there are a few black folk here and there around the country who are graduating uh, today, tomorrow, and the weeks to come uh, with degrees in STEM. Uh, but uh, how much debt they have, how long they'll have that debt, uh, is a whole other question. Uh, and uh, we're talking about the biases uh, and the bad proposition uh, writ large uh, that black folk find themselves having to, to navigate, even though everybody is trying to push more of us into STEM. And Dr. McGee's made the point there are certainly our values, their advantages as to having to having more of us in the field. But when we get in the field, uh, we move a little differently. Uh, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, we, 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 we are, are addressing different issues. We're trying to uh, solve problems uh, that matter uh, and that uh, hem up black people, as it were. So I love the way we move when we're in STEM. Uh, it's the proposition that we're trying to reframe. We'll talk about that more as we move through this hour. Um, let me let me come to this um, uh, specifically, uh, Doctor McGee. Before we move forward, what does uh, in in late modernity, in real time, um, with with regard to STEM, what does black innovation look like? Mm. So that's a really really good and important question. Um, I'm glad you asked me that. Black innovation reminds me of Afrofuturism, mm. which is a combination of science, technology, but there's a little flavor to it. So there might be music, art, and other forms of creativity, you know, from the African diaspora, right? Mm -hmm. So when we think about um, Black innovation, we have to think about it in terms of we are really specifically trying to meet the needs of those who are marginalized and oppressed through our science and technology. So it feels very much culturally affirming as opposed to products like the oximeter, for example, which was measuring, which was supposed to be measuring our oxygen levels during COVID, found out that they did not test it on darker skin tones. Mm. So the oximeter was reading higher readings than average, sending black folks home uh, because of these misguided readings, and people actually die, mm. right? So just the fact that when you have a group of folks who are mostly white, mostly male, mostly middle class, not even thinking about almost 50% of the population, you know that there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. I asked that question about black innovation because I want to, to, to ask this now, and that is the extent to which as black people slowly but surely, uh, the debt notwithstanding, uh, populating um, the, the field of STEM, as you call them, black stemmers, um, the numbers are growing slowly. Uh, but as we get more black stemmers, are we changing the the dynamic? Are we reframing the notion of black folk as consumers versus producers? Does that make sense? Yeah. It makes perfect sense. Wow. Just it, it just feels like I'm talking to an expert in STEM. So let me just say that. You're asking all the right questions. <laughs> um, you know, it's really interesting. There are some people who seem to just put a black face on white power, mm. and we certainly need to recognize and check people like that. Mm -hmm. But the majority of, of Black people in STEM, because of their own experiences, their own experiences of racism and sexism and classism and other isms that are sort of ingrained within the STEM sort of foundation, right, 
are really trying to push and challenge those barriers for a more inclusive, a more diverse, more equitable STEM. So I largely say in my work that to be a Black person and get a STEM degree within itself is an act towards racial justice Mm. because they overwhelmingly want to use their degree for social good and for racial good. No, it's a powerful point. Um, I like the way you frame that. Um, Let me ask you um, uh, about cultural competence. And and this is a conversation, as you well know, we could have, and I I, in fact have had, uh, in any number of fields, uh, medicine and, and beyond. There's always the conversation to be had about the cultural competence or lack thereof in a particular field. We've been talking most primarily about black people and their choice to be in STEM and whether or not it is ultimately a good or a bad proposition. I'm asking you now a question about the field of STEM writ large and how you would define um, cultural competence or the lack thereof in the field. Mm, Well, first of all, STEM has not changed fundamentally uh, since it was sort of position in institutions of higher education. Mm -hmm. So if you take Harvard, for example, they had their first mathematics class in the late 1600s. Physics was in the early 1700s, even computer science in 1962. You know what our people were doing. Mm -hmm. We were enslaved. We were going through the black codes. We had a small moment of reconstruction. And even in 1962, when that computer science class was first being taught at Purdue, you know, we were under the Jim Crow laws. So basically, that's hundreds of years of knowledge creation and generation and generation from a white male Eurocentric frame. And if you look at today's book, today's science or engineering book, the residue is still with us, right? Mm-hmm. So we are sort of steeped in the knowledge of former slaveholders, even Nazis that they brought over uh, from Germany taught STEM classes. Up until 1860, the only two places that you could actually get an engineering degree is through the military and polytechnical institute, right? Mm -hmm. So this sort of culture of STEM is basically a culture that is grounded in white male studies. That raises two questions then. I'll, I'll put them both out at the same time, which I tend not to do, but I'll give you all the room you need to answer both. Um, and, and the questions are how then we go about making STEM. We'll come back to the, to the I haven't forgotten about the, the grad school frame. We'll come back about how we reframe the whole grad school thing. Um, mm-hmm. But the questions now are how then do we make STEM, broadly speaking, more equitable and more ethical? Yes. And when I get this question, people sort of want an algorithmic answer. Like, if you do these five things, it'll be more equitable. But my answer is much more structural in nature. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to need to tear it all down Mm -hmm. and rebuild with people of color in STEM and beyond STEM leading that effort. Now, why do I say we need to tear it down? Because at the foundation, the foundation is steeped in white male supremacy, right? 
And if you try to put, so that's, that, that's the root of the tree. And maybe the leaves may be a little bit colorful, but the leaves cannot function without the root. So I think we need to tear it down and completely rebuild. Now, in the meantime, there are certain things that we can do towards that revolutionary step. I can talk about those if you like. Mm -hmm. Hold that thought. When we come forward, she'll talk Mm -hmm. about those because I like. You're listening. Dr. Ebony McGee, I asked you moments ago how to make um, uh, STEM more equitable and more ethical. And uh, you said we need to tear it down, start all over again. But then you suggested that in the meantime and in between time, there are things we could do. Things like what? Yes. Well, we can certainly respect and properly fund our HBCUs, our uh, historically black colleges and universities, our Hispanic serving institutions, and our tribal colleges because they have the the blueprint for how minoritized people can succeed in STEM, Mm -hmm. right? And they've done this with less resources. They've done this with resources that were actually stolen from HBCUs and given to predominantly um, white institutions. So less lab equipment, um, less grant funding, but they are still able to inspire and aspire uh, black folks to matriculate through STEM. So we we definitely got to bless them. Mm -hmm. We need to create pathways for black people to to pursue STEM entrepreneurship. Now, if you're in a STEM field and you're making a STEM technology, it's very, very expensive. And as you probably know, the venture capital um, folks, only 3% of them are people of color. Only 1%, 1 to 2% of them are black. So we need adequate funding. The goal for STEMers should not be to work for a Google, but to be the next Google, but better, right? Because it's going to be more flavorful. We certainly need to retrain our current STEM faculty and industry leaders towards decolonization. Um, Many of them position STEM as being neutral or universal, innocent non-political. I love that one because, you know, STEM was started because of the military, but somehow STEM is non-political. So they certainly need to be retrained to understand uh, the foundational biases that continue to exist. Um, We need to hire more Black folks in STEM faculty positions. This is my mantra. This is my mantra, especially black and indigenous faculty. So the question I get from universities the most is, how can we do better for our black students? And my answer always is, you need to hire more black faculty. Mm -hmm. And then they ask the question again as if they thought I didn't understand. (laughs) Well, what does that have to do with black students? Everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I take it. I take it. Uh, It is amazing (laughs) the extent to which uh, Mm -hmm. they they think we can't hear. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That that that, that somehow we misunderstood, that we didn't didn't catch the proper frame. We Uh, didn't catch the question. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Can I say one more thing that's needed? Sure. So high-achieving students in STEM, not just high-achieving students, faculty, employees, they experience trauma. Mm. And I almost want to say the trauma in STEM environments 
is doggone near in the air. Mm. It is in the air. So even when you're at home at night preparing for work the next day, you are preparing to fight a battle. You feel like you are perpetually auditioning. So there needs to be a sense of wellness, a sense of not just good mental health, which is all the craze. And I have a critique about mental health, if you want to hear it. But more importantly, there's also physical health outcomes. You know, I have 27-year-olds having strokes, heart disease, Bell's palsy, where a side of their face is paralyzed. No, that's real. And these are the high achievers. No, nope. yes, that's real. And oftentimes there is a price for um, a high achievement. Uh, and I, I, I take your point uh, loud and clear here. Um, when we come forward uh, in our remaining moments with Doctor uh, Ebony McGee, I want to get her take, uh, get her to give us what uh, she's hearing at least from these black stimmers about AI. We talk about AI all the time. They all kind of comments that you can't avoid it. Uh, chat gpt and all the like that's all the rage these days and you can't avoid having these ai these artificial intelligence conversations but i have yet to be able to ask a guess and i will when we come forward uh, what black stimmers are saying about ai and maybe one or two other things we'll get to right quick before we lose dr mcgee at the top of the hour you're listening to dr ebony mcgee right now on kbla talk 1580 dr mcgee i got a tight three minutes here let me try to do two things in these three minutes one to the list of things that you mentioned about what we can do in the meantime and in between time before we tear this thing down this stem model and rebuild it did you want to say anything anything more expressly about the graduate school model in terms of reimagining reconstituting it hmm well i think the graduate school education is one of the key ways that we can sort of resist Um, the way artificial intelligence is currently being rolled out. We know um, AI is notoriously full of errors, but the majority of those errors reflect systemic racism, sexism, ableism, and other isms. So we need folks, uh, black folks particularly, who are on the front lines of AI and talking about the bias in AI. And graduate school is a great pathway for that. But black folks cannot afford to be broke for six to eight years until they get their PhD. You know, this, the the graduate school model right now leaves people wondering about when they're going to start their 401k, when they're going to get married, when they're going to start a family, when they're going to buy a house. So it has so many ramifications, and we need to make the model more welcoming Mm -hmm. and financially um, advantage those folks who want to sort of dismantle the racist AI systems that we have today. We've gone full circle. Uh, We're back to her notion of uh, needing revenue for the revolution. So I take I hear you loud and clear. (laughs) Here's my exit question in the 90 seconds I have left. So what what, writ large, what, what are black stimmers saying about AI? We are scared, but Mm. we've been here before. So if you think about the late 1790s in New York, they had a law. They were called lantern laws that that black folks had to walk around with lanterns so they could be easily, quote unquote, identified. And here we are 300 years later still talking about surveying black bodies, right, surveying them as criminals. Right. So you see the way AI has been rolled out. It leads to hiring discrimination, discrimination Mm. against financial services. 
um, discrimination in buying a house. It actually sort of amplified um, housing segregation. So, and and the way this technology is developing, is developing exponentially. You know, 20 years ago, the message to black folks in STEM was to get a degree in computer science. Now, coders can do these algorithmic, this machine learning can do the computer science for us. Mm. So we have a population of black folks who heeded the message to get a computer science degree just to find out, just to find out their job has been replaced by AI. Mm. So we are fearful. We are fearful about the bias. We are fearful about the future. And we need to be part of the solution. I appreciate you, Dr. Ebony McGee, for spending this hour with us, uh, giving us a chance to interrogate uh, uh, STEM uh, on, a, on a number of levels uh, in a variety of layers uh, and way, or variety of ways, I should say. Uh, it is layered. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I uh, am grateful for this, uh, for this conversation. You see why. She is a professor of diversity and STEM education at Vanderbilt University's Peabody College. She's all that and then some when it comes to this subject matter. And I've enjoyed this immensely. Have a great rest of the day, Dr. McGee. Good to have you on. Thank you, Tavis. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it immensely. Trust and believe, as did the audience. Hour three of Tavis Smiley. When we come forward on KBLA Talk.